All right, so you've got Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 open. Let me, uh, let me read it for us. And then we will walk through it. Paul writes and he says, Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. And this is what he means by that. He says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is what he says about them. Now look at this change he affects. But that's not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What an amazing word that we are given from the Apostle Paul today. You'll, you'll remember that in the last couple of weeks, what we've looked at is, is one that, that God has come in and that he has given each and every believer in Jesus Christ individual gifts to be exercised in the body. And so in salvation, God comes to you and he imparts gifts to you. You're like, oh, I get saved and I get stuff to use. And so he gives gifts to you. Things to be used for what purpose? To the building up the body, for edifying those around you. And then we also found last week as we went through that he's come and that he's given gifts to individuals, gifts of individuals rather. And so you remember that it said he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists. And he kind of goes through this list of all these people that have been given to the church. And now what he does is he comes back. And in some sense, he's giving us a a, a review of what he said to us in chapter 2 and starting off. In some sense, what Paul is doing here is reviewing what he's already said to us. Let me read 2, 1 through 3 again to to remind us of the the setting that Paul is entering into. Chapter 2 opens up and Paul gives us this idea. And he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He said, look, you were were dead people. You were spiritually dead. And you walked in this. This was the course of your life. And this is what that looked like. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. What Paul gives us here. In, in 4, 17 through 19, is not really this deal of there are terrible people in the world and you're not among them. There are terrible people in the world and you're not among them. But in some sense, it really is this, look, you used to be terrible, but you're no longer. So quit acting like you are. Now look what he does. He goes in and he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. This gives us an indication that what Paul is saying to them is is something of utmost importance. He's, He's saying and he's testifying. He's urging them to follow through on the word he's about to give them. It's as if Paul in the text there has flashing lights that's drawing your focus and attention to this. He's saying effectively, get this, pay attention, and then incorporate it in your life. Get this, pay attention, and then incorporate it in your life. Now, what is it that they need to get? Look what he says here. That you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. Now, he's writing largely to a mixed audience. 
He's writing to a group of Jews and Gentiles. You remember, he's already told them that they have become the third race. Together, Jews and Gentiles have been brought near and made one in Christ. But still, they're surrounded by this society, this culture that kind of does whatever they want to do. And so they're engaging in all these lifestyles and behaviors that are, that are anything other than exalting Christ, right? They're engaging in lifestyles that are anything other than exalting Christ. It's just like when you go to check out at the grocery store and, and you see on the deal, and you see like woman gives birth to three-headed child in the one deal, and then it talks about, you know, Bruce or, or Brucina, Jenner, and kind of this thing, right? And so what he's talking about in this, he says, look, you're still surrounded by this culture of people who are following a lifestyle that you're no longer a part of. This is not the defining line of your life anymore. This is not the defining line of your life anymore. And so he tells them, you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. And he writes this, and it's not just this this idea that they're meant to bring it in and say, okay, yeah, I need to leave this alone. But no, the way that he writes it, the way that he's seeking to communicate this to them, it's consciously, daily, moment by moment, as you're surrounded by this pervasive influence of immorality, as you're surrounded by lostness all around you, each and every moment you take hostage. Each and every moment you make sure that the nature of your life, as you're walking out, as you're feeling out your walk in Jesus Christ, it must never look like this. It must never look like this. And so it's bringing us into this evaluative method We're evaluating the way that we're walking. And so we're walking, we're going through the course of our business life, we're going through the course of our relationship life. So if you're dating, you're married, you aspire to be one of those, or you're just a lifelong single, that in the course of being who you are, so every form and fashion of life that you're in, all the spheres of relationships you're in, you're ensuring that these things never find reality in your life. And this is really this this all-encompassing understanding that everything about you should never give the appearance of these things. And look what he says. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, and this is how he describes it, in futility of their minds. Now, you have to recognize something. Paul isn't looking and saying that Christians are necessarily smarter, brighter, or better looking than lost people. This is not true. It wasn't true in Paul's day. It's not true in our day. Christians, you know what sets apart a Christian from a lost person? Forgiveness. It's forgiveness. It's not the fact that some of us got it, got it, got it right. It's not the fact that, that our lives are, are better, that we're smarter, that we're harder workers. It's the fact that we're forgiven. This is what sets us apart. It's the fact that God did a gracious work in your life and he forgave you. He forgave you sins. He made you who were dead and lost and following the prince of the power of the air to be in relationship with him. And so he writes and he says, look, These people, they're walking in the futility of their minds. And for Paul, what this means is not recognizing God as the finish line and the goal. That for the Christian, everything you do, everything you do, down to drawing breath, showing up here on Sunday morning, and letting the little old lady go in front of you at line at lunch, right? All of these things ultimately find their purpose in Christ. But for the lost person, they're not ultimately finding their purpose in this. They're finding their purpose in self. 
They're finding their purpose in job. They're finding their purpose in relationship. They're finding their purpose in their physical body. They're finding their purpose in academics. They're finding their purpose in anything and everything other than God. And what Paul wants us to understand is that when you find your purpose in anything other than God, you're exercising the futility of your mind. That's all-encompassing. That's all-encompassing. And we recognize the tendency to allow other things to take the place that only God should serve in our lives. And so our work, when things are especially pressing and demanding, we, we, we slip up on, on reading our Bible, we give ourselves, and these are the things that we release first, right? Our relationship with Christ takes a backseat when the pressures of life demand that they're in the driver's seat. And what Paul says in here is, no, what we need to do is always keep God first. And this is the mistake, this is the flaw of the lost person. They don't have that. They don't have that ability. They don't have that relationship. It says you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. No longer be who you once were. You have a new goal. You have a new master. God is your goal. Christ is your Lord. And heaven is your reward. Look what he goes on to say. This is how they exercise the futility of their minds. He says, first off, they are darkened in their understanding. Now, this is really similar to what Paul said in the first chapter of Romans. They're, they're darkened in their understanding. They're given over to the futility of their minds, is what he said there. They're understanding the way they see and perceive life. The way they see and perceive life. The way they observe and make, make observations about their relationship. Make observations about what is of first importance. What is of second importance. These things are darkened. They don't have this clear picture that God should be the first, that God should be of primary importance in their life. He says this is the first way that these things are exercised in their life. And being darkened in their understanding, being darkened in their understanding, we recognize that they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now this is a really long passage here. This is a really difficult thing that we could really get out of whack. Look what he says, first of all. They're alienated from the life of God. Now, for the believer hearing this, one of the things Paul doesn't want us to do is to to think of lost people and just think they're so terrible, they're so awful. Remember, the key distinctive that separates a lost person from a saved person is what? We are forgiven. Everybody say, I am forgiven. Now say it like you mean it. Say, I am forgiven. forgiven. The key distinctive that separates a lost person from a saved person is the forgiveness afforded them in Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. Now what he says in here is that they are alienated from the life of God. They're alienated from salvation. Now look what Paul had already written to this group of believers back in 2.12. In 2.12, in chapter 2 and verse 12 of Ephesians, Paul was writing to this group, and look what he said to them. Remember... Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. For the Christian, for the Christian, we look at lost people and we have a reflection of what we used to be. Unforgiven. Unforgiven. And we mourn. We don't scoff. We don't judge. We mourn their pitiable state because they are alienated from the knowledge of God. They're alienated from the life of God. They are set apart 
from salvation. They have not received forgiveness, and so they are unforgiven. Now look what he says. It is because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Paul, and we're going to talk about this in a second. Paul, in, in, in Romans, in Romans chapter 2, in verses 14 and 15, he talks about how the law of God is working in the heart of humanity. If you're studying philosophy, it's referred to as the moral influence theory. And, but what he says here in Romans 2, he says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show, look at this, verse 15 of chapter 2. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul wants us to get to understand is that humanity is created and designed to know God. Humanity is created and designed to know God. But for the lost person, what we find here and what Paul's describing here in Ephesians is because of their hardness of heart, they're setting themselves over and over again against God. They're remaining in this culpable, guilty ignorance of God, and they're separated from God. They're alienated from the life of God. Because when it comes along and and they recognize uh, right to be right and wrong to be wrong is the testimony of God speaking to their life, calling them into relationship with himself, but instead of yielding themselves to it, instead of yielding themselves to it, they harden their heart. They say, no, this is not for me. I'm going to continue to follow my path. I'm going to continue to follow my way. I'm going to continue to set myself, my goals, my hopes and aspirations as the ultimate good of life. And in so doing, through this practice of, of God calling them, of God calling those things in their life of sin and directing them through the purpose of their conscience and, and, and kind of guiding their heart through this deal, but through the purpose or through the process of them repeatedly saying no to God. Through the process of them repeatedly saying no and saying, no, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't believe in you. Through this process, look what we find here. Verse 19, they have become callous. Some of your other translations might render this as as despondent. They no longer respond to these things. They no, no longer respond to these things. That which at one point in their life would yield with this overwhelming sense of guilt, overwhelming sense of despair, no longer even causes them to raise their eyebrows anymore. That which at one point in their life would cause them to say, no, I wouldn't cheat on my spouse. No, I wouldn't do this. No, I wouldn't steal money no longer causes them to react in the same way. Through this process of hardening, through this process of repeatedly saying no to the promptings of God in their heart, they're becoming callous. Have you ever had any really good calluses? I used to have these tremendous calluses across my hands right here. I no longer, now these things are like baby, baby smooth. I subbed that a little bit. I remember my, uh, my father-in-law, he has like, his hands are callous. His hands are callous. And so, I mean, it's like the guy doesn't need a hammer. He can just pick it up and just pound because his hand is just one solid callous. If he needs a screwdriver, he uses a thumbnail. I mean, he just, he, he, Phillips is really interesting. He's got a, a, a detachable thumbnail for that one. 
But at one point when Valerie and I were engaged, I was working at a truck shop, and I, and, and I began to get these incredible calluses on my hand. And it's like every joint had a callus and every callus had its own callus. And my hands, they were, they, were, they were man hands for like the first time in my life, right? They're small, but they were calloused. It's not that funny, Justin. <laughs> and, so, and, and so I go over and, and we're having some type of family get together and I stick my hand out. And I don't know how he could feel this through callus upon callus, but he shook my hand and his heart grew three sizes that day. And he looked at me, and he said, now that is a man's hand. <laughs> These calluses that had formed in my hands caused me to no longer feel when the, when the gears would turn and they would cut my hand because it would just peel off a little bit of the callus. It would just peel off a little bit of the callus. It wouldn't hurt anymore. And so things, which in the beginning of when I began to work there, that would hurt, they would cause pain, cause me to do this number, no longer. Because I developed such intense calluses on my hand from using them over and over and over again. What we see in the life of a lost person as they're continually militating against God, as they're continually not following these promptings of the Holy Spirit in their heart, in their minds, they begin to put up a shell, a callus. They begin to put up a shell, they begin to put up a callus, and that that movement, that prompting of God no longer is having effect in their hearts because they keep saying no. This is the picture it gives us. And when this hardness of heart gives birth to full-born calluses, the text tells us that they give themselves up to sensuality. They give themselves up to wanton debauchery. They give themselves up to pursuing every form of gratification that they might ever imagine. That they might ever imagine. Look what he goes on to say. He says, they give themselves up to every form of sensuality, every evil, vile practice that you might, if I were to go to you and say, can you list some evil, vile practices? You you start listing them off. This is what we ultimately find themselves being given up to. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I've heard people say over and over again, you know, Matt, the world's just, it's just not the same place that it used to be. Society is just, it's just, it's just awful. Things are terrible. We find things reported and, and, and things people are reveling over that never we would before. I just don't think that's true. I just don't think that's true. You know why we hear more about it now? We have so many ways to be contacted. There's a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. And Postman makes the argument that really when, when we started breaking down was the invention of the telegraph. The invention of the telegraph. He said because all of a sudden news on the east coast, a flood on the east coast began to be news for somebody living in Texas. We have so many ways of being contacted. So we hear about all these things that pop up. And you know the other thing? All those things that existed only in the mind of man. And so gender reassignment, transgender, all of these things, now we have the the science and technology to make reality. It's not that humanity is becoming more perverse and more lost. You cannot become more lost than being unforgiven. Do you see that? You cannot become more lost than being unforgiven. And this is the reality. You might sit here and you've been a Christian for 50, for 60 years. This could have been your life. 
except for the grace of God working in conjunction with your will. This would have been your story. And so whenever we see lost people, whenever we read the headlines and you read about Bruce Jenner and and you're just disgusted, like you find it to be vile, you find it to be terrible, or you see homosexuals and you say, I can't believe somebody would act that way. I can't believe somebody would engage in this lifestyle. It should not drive the Christian. These things should not drive the Christian to judgment, but to mourning. They should not drive the Christian to look at them and say, man, I hope they get what they have coming to them. No, you recognize what you had coming to you was terrible, it was awful. This is why Paul, in chapter 2, says you were dead. And he comes back to it again in this idea. He says, look, you can't walk this way anymore. You are not who you once were. It gives us an indication, it gives us a picture that this was our story. This is every Christian's story. We were all lost and set apart from God. But the graciousness of God working in our hearts called us to repentance. It called us to salvation. We don't scoff. We don't hate lost people. We mourn for them. And we plead with them to surrender their hearts, to stop hardening, stop hardening their hearts, to allow the calluses to fall off so that the light of the gospel might bring life to their aching soul. I read 19 and I weep. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It doesn't cause outrage in me. It causes sorrow. This is how we impact people with the gospel. You don't go to them and say, what the Bible says is, 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 is you're a lost, awful, terrible person. You say, my Bible tells me that I was the same as you, but I've been forgiven. This is what makes the gospel so glorious that it forgives wretches just like you and just like me. Now look what Paul does next. So he's given them a snapshot of what their lives were, what their lives could have been, of just near-miss fatality of being surrendered over to licentiousness, to greedy, wanton pleasure. And what he says is, but that is not the way you learned Christ. In some sense, Paul is saying, look, you didn't come to Jesus because everything else failed. What he says here is, look, this is not how you learned Christ. This isn't how you came to know him. You learned Jesus in a decidedly different way. Well, what what way is this? Well, when we go back to verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, even while your calloused, dead heart was moving against him, Even in the midst of this, God saved you. And he's made us alive together with Christ. And then he summarizes, by grace you have been saved. You didn't learn Christ this way. But but God graciously moved in salvation to make your dead heart beat for him. So how is it that we have learned this Christ? This Christ who in 120 is, is seated at the right hand of the Father. This Christ who in 2.6 takes us with him to be seated there with him. This Christ who we're spoken of in, in Ephesians 1.13 that we have believed in. In him 
You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, this Christ, who causes us to be founded and grounded in love, 317. This Christ, who we are to grow up into maturity, 413. Do you recognize that this Christ, he has laid hold of your life from the very foundation of the world all the way through to full maturity in his return? This is the Christ that you've learned. This is the Christ that you've learned. And in learning this Christ, Paul goes on to say, he says, look, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught him as the truth is in Jesus. So Paul makes an assumption of these Ephesian Christians. Recognize that Paul was in Ephesus for three or four months and then he left for about six or seven years and now he's writing to them again. And so he's basing his information on them on what he has heard about them, not necessarily on firsthand knowledge. Okay, And so he's heard about them from others. And so he is making this connection. This isn't the way you've learned Christ. These aren't the principles that were laid down for you. And look, you ha- this is not the way that you have been taught. And so he says, look, assuming that you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What Paul does there is he makes the definitive claim that the only real truth is truth founded in Jesus. You want to know what results in the futility of their minds? It's not locating truth in Jesus, but inside themselves. You've heard people say, I'm sure, well, this is true for me. This is true for me. Or this is my truth. They're seeking to make exclusive claims of the truth for themselves. What Paul writes us here, he says, the only truth is truth in Jesus. The only truth is truth in Jesus. And Jesus, and it's this being taught the truth of Jesus which sets them apart. It's this truth of, of Jesus that sets them apart, that causes them to be forgiven. It causes you and I to be forgiven. This is what he says to them. He's assuming they were taught something. You know, this is interesting. Given the fact that last week when we're going through this, He said that he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds. And what was the last thing? He said, and teachers. These folks have submitted their lives to place themselves underneath others who would teach them not how to have better lives, not how to balance their bank accounts, not how to have more mature or winsome children or have better table conversation, but the truth that's in Jesus. The teaching of the church should be Jesus. Like, this is the sum and substance of our teaching. What is it? It's Jesus. What do you guys teach? We teach Jesus. Oh, that's interesting. We teach some other stuff. Okay, well, what Paul says here is that their teaching should be Jesus. It's the truth in Jesus. The truth contained in his name, who he is, what he has done, that he has died, and that he was raised again. The truth that the church teaches is the truth in Jesus. Now, look at this. Paul must be this good proto-Baptist because he gives us three things to do at the end. Three things that they need to do. Assuming that you know Jesus. Paul could step into this room today and he could use the same deal. And this is what he would say to Christians. Assuming that you know Jesus. Assuming he has saved you, I have three things for you to do. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never asked him to come into your heart to forgive you of your sins, these things aren't on you. You can't do these things. 
outside of salvation in Jesus, asking him to come in and forgive you your sins, repenting of those sins, and believing that God allowed him to die for your transgressions and to be raised again on the third day. Outside of these things, you can't do this. The gospel is not about calling lost people to live better lives or more moral lives. It's one of the worst things you can do is to go to a lost person and tell them, you just need to live a better life. You just need to quit doing these things. You're calling them to works-based righteousness. Just like many of us call our children to works-based righteousness. What he's calling them to is full-bore surrender. And in that surrender with Jesus' truth, in that surrender, this is what he calls them to, these three things. So assuming that you in this room know Jesus, this is what Paul calls you to. He says, put off your old self. Put off your old self. Now, he's already told them, you are no longer to walk as the Gentiles walk. And he described that. And then he comes back and he hits them one more time. He says, put off the old self. In salvation, your old self was put to death. In salvation, your old self was put to death. Your old way of of responding to the flesh. Your old way of following the desires of the flesh. Your old way of being, just as chapter 2 opens up, following internal, external, and supernatural forces. And what Paul calls you to do in this, he says, assuming you know Jesus, put off the old self. She began to think, what things were in my life prior to salvation? What things were in my life? Did I have a horrible temper? Was I a greedy jerk? Did did I have this horrible mouth? Did Did I always want my way? What things were in my life prior to coming to faith? These things, says Paul, need to be put off. These things, says Paul, need to be put off. And so for the person who comes to faith, and, and, and prior to salvation, they're just this awful jerk of a guy, or awful, just this terrible shrew of a woman. When they come to faith in Jesus Christ, you know what they do? They take this jerkiness. They take this, this, uh, this part of them that's, that's such an incredible shrew. I mean, taming the shrew, this is who you think of, right? They take all of this, they divest themselves of it. They remove it just like they do a sweat-stained, pit-soaked shirt. Did any of you have these undershirts that have like the yellow underarms? Imagine this is you prior to salvation. Do you wear this to a fine dinner? You walk in, you're like, hey, what's up? Everybody's like, whoa, your deodorant's like caking your underarms of your shirt. Why are you wearing that? You're like, this is me. This is who I really am. This would be as if the maitre d' comes to you and says, brother, you got to take that thing off. Why? Because you're no longer who you were. This is no longer you. The vile person you were prior to faith in Jesus Christ is no longer you anymore. The key distinction that separates a lost person from a Christian is forgiveness. You've been forgiven for the way you used to be. Take that off. Quit wearing it around as a badge of honor. Quit wearing it around as a reminder of who you used to be. Those things that that kept you tied down, those things that kept you low, those things that were hardening your heart, those things that were bringing calluses are no longer true of you anymore. Let them go. Let them go. Paul recognizes that our former self, our former manner of life, look what he says. He says, put these things off. They belong to your former manner of life. And this former manner of life, 
This former manner of life is corrupt through deceitful desires. These deceitful desires, these lying whims that seek to call you back into that lifestyle, they are lies. They're seeking to deceive you, seeking to lie to you, seeking to aggrandize a reality that wasn't not really true. Paul says, put this thing off. Let it go. And in letting that go, this is what he calls us to next. Renewing our minds. He says you need to renew your minds. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. It's this amazing process. Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognizes that some of us will feel so heavy laden about who, how, who we used to be, how we used to act. And so he knows that he needs to come to us and say, put that mess off. Like who you used to be, who your spouse brings up when they're angry with you, who your friends remember you used to be, those people on Facebook that friend you and say, remember when we did this? And you're like, denied. Not posting that on my wall. He knew that we would need to to kick this stuff off, to put this away. And one of the ways that we war against that tendency of keeping that old trash garbage on us is by renewing the mind of our spirit. What do we do? It's this conscious request for the spirit of God to move in our lives. Friend, I want you to understand something. It's not that you made it to this and all of a sudden Paul says, assuming you know God, now go do this on your own. Assuming you know God, now the rest of this is on you. Recognize that all of this is done through the supernatural empowerment of God's Holy Spirit at work in you. Like it's not that God saves you and then says, Trish, go be good. And you're like, like on my own be good? And he says, yeah, like on your own be good. And so Trish, you know what she would do if this is what God had said? Trish, on your own go be good? She's moving to an island a long, long ways away from all of you. And then on that island, she's getting those sound-canceling headphones because on that island, she wants to hear nothing but like white noise and static because she doesn't want bad thoughts creeping into her mind. She can't be good on her own. I can't be good on my own. And so we recognize that in all of these, in the putting off, in the renewing of the mind, it is the work of the Holy Spirit moving in us to produce these things. Look back at 316. Look back at 3.16. He says that according to the riches of his glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being grounded and rooted in love. It's the amazing picture here. God's grace doesn't stop at salvation. It continues to be effective over the course and duration of your life. The grace which saved you is the grace which sustains you. The grace which brought you to him is the grace which keeps you in him. What he calls us to do here is to be continually reminded of our need and dependence upon Jesus. As we study his word, as we give ourselves to reflecting on the truth and the reality of scripture, you want to know who you are in Jesus? Devour this book. You want to know who you are in Jesus? Devour this. Internalize this. Internalize this to the degree to when somebody steps up to you and says, you are this awful, terrible wretch, and you say, I am not who I once was. Internalize this word to when somebody steps up to you, you remind yourself, I was dead in my trespasses, in which I once walked, but no longer. 
internalize this word to the degree that when somebody steps up and accuses you of something, it is not your wit, it is not your ability to endure, but it is his word coming out of your mouth, which is residing in your heart that causes you to be able to stand. Renew yourself. Renew yourself. Allow his spirit to continue to do this work in your life. Recognize that the Christian life is not meant to be lived as this kind of lone survivor, lone wolf mentality, where you're all alone. You're surrounded by other brothers and sisters in Christ. This place breeds community. This place should breed life. When you're struggling with something, recognize the Holy Spirit has united you with other brothers and sisters in Christ who have likely gone through the same thing. Go to them. Say, I'm struggling with this. Would you come alongside me? Be renewed by the fellowship of the Spirit at work in your other brothers and sisters in Christ. Want to know why unity is so important in the church? Because you can't do that. You can't have that conversation with people you're not unified with because you can't trust them. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Look what he says on here last. So we divest ourselves of what we once were. We renew renew ourselves in the spirit of our minds. And then lastly, we put on the new self. We put on the new self. It's this amazing deal. God doesn't cause you to go around wearing that nasty armpit stained shirt to everything you go to. He comes to you and he says, look, take that mess off Renew your mind and put this on. And he adorns you with the finest clothes. He adorns you with the finest thing possibly imaginable. Look at what he says here. And put on the new self. And this is how he describes it. This new self, which we're instructed to put on, is created after the likeness of God. This is what Paul's writing here. In Genesis 1.26, Moses writing, and God says, let us create man in our image and in our likeness. And then humanity fell. Humanity rebelled against God. And so what Paul is describing here is putting on this newly created man, putting on this newly created human that is also made in the renewed likeness and image of God. And this is how it's manifested. This is how it is shown in our lives. This new image, this new man that you were to put on, This new person that you are to put on, he's created after the likeness of God. And this is what that means. True righteousness and holiness. This is the mainstay of the Christian's life. Holiness and righteousness. We see this amazing picture here in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. That we were lost that we pursued our own passions. And Paul goes on and he says, look, don't walk like this anymore. Don't walk as you used to be. Don't live as you once were. Don't let this be your example because you were taught something radically different. You were saved. You were changed. And in this new change, God has effected in you. He calls on you to put off those former things, to be renewed by his spirit each and every day, each and every moment, and to put on your new self that he created when he saved you. Do you see that amazing reality? That as a Christian, you're not who you once were. But you've been recreated in the image and the likeness of God to exude, to display, to embody God's holiness and his righteousness. 
And this is what he calls the church to be faithful in, being salt and light in our neighborhood by displaying his holiness and his righteousness. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would continue to be at work in our hearts. God, I confess this morning that it is so tempting when we're surrounded by those who who knew us as we once were and they, they call us to embrace that former lifestyle. To fall back into that. But God, you have purchased us with the blood of Christ. You have put to death our former way of existence, our former life. God, help us to to put off our former selves. To put off the old man. God, I pray that your spirit would be working in our midst to renew our minds. Father, I thank you that you don't leave us alone. I thank you that, that even this endurance is the gift of your spirit. And God, these these difficulties and wranglings. And Father, I pray for some in this room that are, God, just struggling with whether or not they're forgiven. God, I thank you for the sweet grace of your spirit that, that even causes us to ask these questions so we might have a renewed sense of our dependence upon you. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace, your kindness. Father, I pray that you would give us the strength. God, give us the strength and give us the endurance through the power of your spirit to walk in true holiness and righteousness in the midst of a world that is so dark, in the midst of a world in which we once lived. Father, we're not who we once were. We are forgiven. God, help us to walk in the reality of that. In Christ's name, amen.